0: It's a blessing to be here. Um, Last time I was here, I think it was about a year ago, we went through uh, Philippians together and that was a a real big blessing. Um, Our church meets in the evening, so I do have the freedoms to help and minister at other churches when the opportunities arise. And so I'm not missing out much on my own local church. I'm here in one sense um, because the Lord has given the opportunity and still able to do both. Um, Although the Lord led me to himself in my first year of college, I did grow up in this particular area, very close uh, to the Bellflower area. I went to a Dutch Reformed high school in Cerritos, if you guys know Valley Christian. So I went to a Dutch Reformed high school. I'm not Dutch. I don't look Dutch. Uh, I am Reformed, lowercase r, so uh, I was raised in the Bible, I grew up around the Bible, I went to a Presbyterian church growing up, I'm shirt and tie is kind of my norm, and so I'm not a stranger to this particular area, I love SoCal, and I love that there are Christians in this part of Southern California, for a long time I think I felt like I was in an island, and uh, praise God for what you guys are doing, and we pray for you regularly, and We're thankful that you guys are here sharing the gospel. Well, as PJ said, we will spend our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. I just want to begin our time simply by asking a question. What do you do when a movie ends? Do you try and find the names of actors who played your favorite characters? Perhaps you try and find somebody who has the same name as you. It's very rare for me to find someone who has the name Pakingan. Pakingan means listen in Tagalog. Very good name for a preacher. Uh, but not a very good name for an actor. So maybe you try and find someone who has the same name as you. Maybe you try and find a name of a friend that you know worked on the movie, and you know his name is, or her name, is going to be there. Maybe you don't like the end credits and just want to get out of the theater. That's kind of more of where I fall in. Uh, My wife loves movies, and I love to sleep during movies. So I give $12 away so I could sleep in a movie theater. Uh, Movie makers today have found a a significant way to keep audiences around during the end credits. Sometimes credits will play a blooper reel at the end just to keep you entertained, just to let you wind down after that particular experience. And sometimes credits will cut out and show comical yet inconsequential scenes to the movie that were cut out. Uh, Still, others try and use them in a more meaningful way. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, a movie was released that I'm sure you guys have all seen Uh, Endgame. Endgame or Infinity War? I get confused. Endgame, Endgame, Avengers Endgame. And that actually ended some like 10 or 15 year saga of a series of movies that were all interwoven and connected with one another. And one of the ways that the movie makers had tried to connect these movies together was, was by putting little tidbits at the end of each movie, at the end of the credits, so that you could see how they all link and work together. I know very many people who love this franchise and love this series, and they were always excited to see how these things would play out in the end. And you know, it's interesting because the text that we're going to look at is an important part of our Bible because it comes at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and what it does is it tries to tie certain ends together, and it tries to connect the book of Ecclesiastes with the larger part of what God is accomplishing in His Word. It's not It's not dissimilar from what the Marvel franchise tried to do in connecting all of their movies. Uh, The end of the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a wonderful epilogue that is not inconsequential at all. It's not a part where you as the reader are intended to zone out. It's a very important part that God wants you to listen to. He wants you to stay to the end. He wants you to finish the book. He wants you to understand what it actually is saying and how it connects To the larger picture. This end credit scene is going to address the topic of life's purpose. So it should not be taken lightly. Throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has labored to show us all the different avenues through which man on earth, no matter where you lived or when you lived, it shows us all the avenues where man tries to find meaning. You know, it's interesting because he spends a large portion of the first two chapters, if you would allow me to summarize this this book, he spends a large portion of the first two chapters addressing the pursuit of pleasure. He talks about recognition from others. He talks about the, the accumulation of wealth. He talks about the earthly pleasures that we could face even in matters like substance abuse. Or sexuality? You know, the Bible doesn't hide those things under rocks. The Bible actually recognizes that those are viable options that humanity tries to pursue in order to fulfill their purpose and meaning in life. He, he then goes on from talking about the pursuit of pleasure in the first two chapters by addressing things in life that seem to provide meaning, and they are meaningful, but they are never intended to provide fulfillment. He talks about how we spend our time. That it's not based on the Beatles, that Beatles song. It's based off Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He talks about how we use our time and how the use of our time, and if we fill it with the right things, perhaps there's there, there's purpose and meaning in that. And that's all good and that's all fine, and we should all be thinking about those things, but how we use our time may not be the be-all and end-all of our existence. It's part of it, but it's not the ultimate thing. He even talks about the justice system, if you could allow me to talk about that a little bit. He talks about how, you know, there are certain things in life that we look at it and they just don't seem right. They just don't seem fair. And it talks about how even in, in, a, in a government run by a handpicked king that God had chosen, even Solomon looks out and says, man, there are still a lot of injustices here. And Solomon says, You know, I'm not going to stop trying to resolve these injustices that happen here on earth. But then he does end up crying, Uncle, because he says in chapter three, Well, God will avenge. God will judge in the end. God knows those who have gotten away with crimes. And so he talks about these good things. He talks about economics. He talks about money. He talks about the the accumulation of wealth and earning money. As our brother, as Pastor P.J. had prayed, it's good to pray for the success of individuals in the workplace, but that's not the be-all and end-all of things. In the last major section, covering about half of the book, from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 12, Solomon actually talks about how there are practical things that we do in light of the truths found in the first half of the book that redirect or refocus our understanding of life's purpose And meaning, it's not just about pursuing good things, but there there is something greater, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The epilogue of Ecclesiastes reminds us of four major takeaways when we reflect upon the book. Four major takeaways. These takeaways help us take some of the complex issues that Solomon addressed, and it condenses them into some bite-sized. Application points that are digestible and easy on the palate. And so we'll take a look at these four principles. Uh, You guys heard the preacher one day was preaching, and all of a sudden the congregation started, was giving their amens, and they said, Amen, Pharaoh. What does that mean? It means, let my people go. So when you guys start to get hungry, or when I cross that line, someone give me an Amen, Pharaoh. And I'll make sure that we can wrap things up. I actually didn't ask PJ how how much time we have here. However's needed. All right, so no Amen Pharaohs today. No Amen Pharaohs. The first takeaway that I'd like to draw our attention, which is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9 through 10, is that Ecclesiastes teaches us that we are lifelong learners, That as human beings, God created us, and one of the very purposes of life is that we would be lifelong learners. Notice what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. He says, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, he explored, and he arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. It's very interesting because in chapters 6 through 12, Solomon spends a lot of time referring to himself as me or I. He talks, he's talking to you as a person. He's talking to you as a regular individual that you might be having coffee with. But all of a sudden, in verses 9 through 10, he switches in order to draw attention to a particular title that God has called him to. He doesn't say me. He doesn't say I. He says, listen, I am a teacher. I am a wise man. And notice that the nature of his job is that he constantly taught the people knowledge. There is a teacher who has a responsibility. And there are students that have a responsibility. And they are called to be learners. Notice this is a responsibility that continues. It is ongoing. Solomon reminds readers of his credentials. He identifies himself as a wise man. It's a technical term used to describe the advisors and counselors to the king. He reminds his readers by identifying himself as the teacher that he has a position of authority and they are intended to be learners. He is a representative of God. He is a spokesman who speaks on his behalf and the people are intended to learn. Um, I went back to school this last fall in order to finish. I didn't learn enough the first time, so I had to go back. So I went back to school, and and I forgot what it was like to be under the the, the pressures of the deadline, that there are assignments that are due, and there's time. And and I'm going to finish in June, and my wife is really looking forward to when I'll be done in June. And and she's really looking forward, because there's going to be a freedom, and and I'm not going to have that that lurking feeling that there's something due, and I just maybe forgot about it or got too busy. while I might have this, this desire to be free from, learn, or free from the institution of learning, that doesn't mean that my life is free from learning. A learning is a desire that we as Christians should have, and, and the very content of what we learn, as we'll see here, is, is true knowledge. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He also says that he, he taught us in ways that he, he thought through these things he, and, he, and he arranged them in palatable ways, in, in the ways of Proverbs. In other words, God wants us to learn. God doesn't take his truth and put it in such abstract ways or communicate it in such difficult ways that it's impossible for us to learn. He gives us teachers, and then those teachers, here is Solomon, puts it in ways that are palatable, digestible, and understandable. Learning is good. You never graduate from the school of life. He wants us to learn true knowledge. Knowledge is not intended to be hoarded, but notice it is intended to be given to as many people as possible. Do you guys know people like that who are always trying to keep secrets? They're always trying to keep things, their own thing, and it's like, man, why can't you just... If you know a place that that, that has really good food, why can't you just share it with us? Why do you have to keep it for yourself? Right? Right? If, if you know certain things that, that you know other people will benefit from, why, why are you trying to keep, knowledge is never intended to be hoarded. And you know what's interesting? The most joyful things in life, we actually don't hoard. The most things that we, the, the things in life that we find most joyful are things we most naturally talk about and share with other people. This type of knowledge that Solomon has gathered has dealt with a wide spectrum of life's complexities. Remember, he discussed things like time, resources, politics, justice, the reason for existence, and he says, I've arranged these things in the form of Proverbs so that you can understand them. Notice the method. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. He pondered, he thought, he searched out, he weighed, he explored, and noticed that they are delightful. This indicates the methodology of his research and reporting, and it shows that Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes expects us to enjoy the process of learning. The text also tells us that the study, uh, that study and pursuit of truth is intended to be our joy. Um, my wife and I, when we first uh, got married, we were living in an apartment right next to Cerritos College. And there's one thing we just didn't like about that apartment. We lived there for 18 months. We did not have an in-unit washer dryer. And you don't even realize that's a deal breaker nowadays. You know, you just drag in your laundry from your house and then going back to your parents' house, because you don't want you know, you to break the bank with your quarters. And then your parents are kind enough to let you do your laundry there. And then, you are you know, we, we, were, we were living in a place, and we didn't realize how much of a convenience it was to have a washer-dryer in our own unit. And then when we finally moved into the house we live in now, we bought this washer-dryer. Oh, we're all thanking God. Oh, man, we finally get to do laundry at home and all these things. And then we have been living in that house now for eight years, seven years. And she asked me, you know, I know our washer can do this particular function. Do you know how to do it? said, no, but I'll figure it out, right? It's my responsibility. I got to figure this out. So I go online, and I Google the manual. And I start reading the manual. It's like a 200-page manual, Saturday night before church. And I'm thinking, Lord, I hope this honors you in the end. And then I start reading it, and it's super dry, But then I start to realize, man, you know, if we bought a $20 attachment, we can control our washer from our phones. Then I started reading, you know, we have, there's a steam option on this thing. Man, and then I started realizing that this washer dryer can do a lot more than what we've actually been using it for. And the reason why it took me eight years to figure that out is because the manual is boring. It's boring. It's boring. And here, when when Solomon is describing the relationship between the believer and the Word, we are not reading a dry manual that someone wrote merely for our information to let us get, quote-unquote, the most out of life. The manual is actually part of the joy of living the Christian life. And we have to take a step back and and ask ourselves, sometimes in extremely Bible-centric circles, we begin to teach, treat the Bible that way. I remember one time talking to an older pastor, asking him for advice, what do you do on your days off? He said, you know, I, I, I sit on my couch. I don't sit at my study. I sit at my couch and I read my Bible. And I'm thinking, well, you don't want to play basketball. You don't want to watch movies. And he just says, I just want to rest and relax and enjoy God. And I think there, there is a, a, a place where maybe reading our Bible can get so mechanical, it can become so so uh, routine that it becomes cold orthodox. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place where continuing reading our Bible, devoting large chunks of time to understanding the Word can't be enjoyable. Ecclesiastes Solomon is teaching us, first and foremost, that we should be invested in learning. Real quick point here, the life of Solomon as one of Israel's most, or probably Israel's most successful king outside of our Lord and Savior, was that many people came to to listen to Solomon and, and to see what God was accomplishing in and among Israel. I do actually believe part of the reason why Ecclesiastes was written was to have something in hand that Solomon can give to Gentiles as they came around the world to basically argue that the God of Israel is the one true God. And so if you're here inquiring today, and if you don't understand anything about Christianity or the Bible or, or what we believe or, or what our values are, the Bible is intended to be joyfully read and understood, and, and we'll see where this should lead us. That's the first takeaway. If, if, if you do read your Bible regularly, do you love it? Do you share it with others? Do you talk about it with unbelievers? Have you done the things necessary to sit down to simply just read and, and enjoy the Word? That's the first takeaway that Solomon wants us to remember. We are lifelong learners. Secondly, Secondly, in verse 11, the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'd argue the, the Bible at large, expects us And encourages us not only to be lifelong workers, but it encourages us to act. To act. Notice verse 11. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. And those from from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. There was an aim and a purpose in God giving us the Bible. There was a reason for it. Solomon says that these these words that he's saying they're like cattle prods. Cattle prods were simply anything you could find to poke the cattle in order to get them back on track. Actually, oftentimes these cattle prods looked a lot like a, a, a bat, and what they would often do is that sometimes hitting the cattle was not enough to get it in place. They had to put nails in this piece of wood. It was almost like spurs to a horse. And they would take these pieces of wood and they would put nails in them and they they would strike the cattle. And although it might hurt at the time, it was what is necessary to put them back on the right place or put them in the safe area or the safe place. The Word of God, although there are times when we read it, understand it, and act upon it, it might sting. But it is intended to elicit a response from its hearers, a response from its readers. I love the words of J.C. Ryle. He says, don't you for one second, don't you for one second think about turning the pages of your Bible without turning the pages of your heart. We cannot read the book and be unaffected. It's like good music. I'm, I'm a little nervous. Next week we have... Uh, one of our guys at our church getting married right before Mother's Day. He's getting married, and I always ask. I'm not so fundamental. I mean, I wear a tie, but I'm not such a fundamentalist that I don't care about dancing or things like that. But I always ask, will there be dancing at this wedding? Because my wife loves to dance. Notice, my wife likes to dance. I don't, I, yeah, I don't really dance much. But there is something that good music does Good music will always elicit a response, whether you can dance or not. (laughs) On the dance floor, you you feel the effects of music. Even in, 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 in watching movies, try watching a scary movie on mute. It's not so scary anymore, right? Even singing with the church, music elicits an emotional response. You know, you're singing these songs, praising God, man, he forgives me, his mercy is more. You're about to shed a tear, and the person next to you is singing out of tune. Where does that tear go? Right back up where it came from. (laughs) Good music elicits a response. I was standing next to our intern, Josh, not saying he sings out of tune, Good music elicits a response, a natural response, and it's interesting because the tone of the music dictates and determines the response. Sad music will lead you to tears. Joyful music will give you happiness. Right? Scary music will give you fear. There there are proper and appropriate responses to different tones. I'm here to tell you that if you are not a Christian, And you read the word of God. God is eliciting a response from your life. And that life is not to become a better person. Because let me tell you, you cannot become a better person for heaven's standards. And the response that God's word is telling you is that you shouldn't treat the Bible like a vitamin or a supplement. It's like, you know, if I take one Bible verse a day, then I'll be A-okay. When you read the Bible, the the response that God is eliciting from unbelievers who are listening is that, I am all that you need. I can give you satisfaction unending for all of eternity. And for those who truly want to respond to that message, repent of your sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Find fulfillment, forgiveness, happiness, faith, and repentance, and holiness all in Him. Come to Christ. He is more worthy than anything that this world has to offer. There is a response that God elicits for us as true believers. We are tethered to the gospel. We will never step or we can never forget that we should we should continually find ourselves in the shadow of what Christ has done and when God elicits a response from us we obey the book of ecclesiastes teaches us to act to act notice when we respond to god's word the end of verse 11 says the sayings are given by one shepherd uh, this might be debatable when you read commentaries and scholars alike, but I, I, I tend to think that you know, how this translation has it, it, it has it with a capital S. It's given by one shepherd. It's given by God himself. In, in a world that does not like to listen or, or, or give Credence to the idea of absolute truth. The Bible tells us that when we read His Word and when we understand the things that He tells us, that these things are coming from an authoritative source. But notice how the authority is described as a shepherd. As a shepherd, we we often misunderstand what it means to have leadership because we live in a polarizing culture. And here it's saying, the one who gives you these truths, the one who's eliciting a response, is the same one who cares for your soul. He is the same one that feeds you, that protects you, that guides you, and wants to lead you safely home. The book of Ecclesiastes elicits a response that we act and we trust the word of God because we know that when we listen to it, it is what's best for us because we are being guided by the shepherd. This is why Christians never base their beliefs off the results or consequences of actions. Right? You should never base your beliefs simply on what you can get out of it. You know, my wife and I, we've been praying for children for eight years. And God has not answered that prayer. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for children. I don't think there's anything wrong with having children. There's a bunch of children here. But for some reason, God has not answered that prayer. But if I want children so much that I resort to something like kidnapping... Sorry, I didn't mean to point here. <laughs> you can have the right desire and, and the right end result, but the means don't justify the end. We could take the opposite side of things. If we solely base our, our morality and our ethics simply on the result, what if we're driving home and we see a building on fire with innocent people in there? about to die and someone and I run in there and I'm not what I used I'm not what I was in my 20s and I run in there and I have a good desire to save an innocent life but I fail I die a good desire but it ends in death if we base our beliefs solely on the end result or consequences we would say I would be a moral failure So we cannot base our morality and our ethics simply on what comes out of it on the other side. Here the text is saying, no, just obey the word and trust that the shepherd is leading you to where you need to be led. Trust the shepherd. Trust his word. Trust where he's leading you. And we don't always have to have the answers for those difficult questions. I don't know why I don't have kids yet, and maybe I'll never know why, but I must trust the shepherd. You may not know why God has put you in particular situations, but you must trust the shepherd. You may not even know why God put you in this church. I'm an outsider, so I don't know any details. But trust the shepherd because he puts you here and obey his word. This is a major takeaway from the book of Ecclesiastes. Third takeaway that I'd like to look at is that the book of Ecclesiastes not only encourages us to be lifelong learners it not only encourages us to act on God's word, but it also encourages us to redirect our focus. Verse 12 is very simple. He says, but beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body amen there is a redirection solomon wants to remind his readers of the human tendency to look to novelty for satisfaction or 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 intrigue today these questions have ancient answers found in the scriptures but people will always be attracted to some kind of novel way for explaining life's greatest mysteries Solomon wants to redirect our focus away from earthly solutions to focus on God's revealed word, just like how our brother prayed in the prayer of confession. We are drawn to, we are prone to novel things, things that are new, but the Bible gives ancient solutions that are timeless. This is the first occurrence of the recipients being identified as his sons, actually. He says, but beyond these, my son. He addresses the audience for the first time and identifies them as his children. It's common in other wisdom literature, namely Proverbs, for Solomon to do this. But here in Ecclesiastes, it comes at the end. And some have believed these sons to be the wisdom pupils of Solomon who are reading, but others believe it to literally refer to his children. The point is that Solomon has spiritual responsibility for whoever these individuals are, and he wants them to know that, listen, I've lived life here on this earth, and I've experienced certain things, and there's something that I can tell you here that life is distracting by nature. Solomon sees himself as a father figure, and he is doing this for the benefit of his children. This is completely in line with what the New Testament says, when the Bible tells us that fathers must take up the mantle of raising their children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. He does so by identifying the futility of pursuing earthly wisdom. Notice the writings here. There is no end to the making of of many books, it is endless. There is excessive devotion to study, which leads to the wearying of the body. This text is saying that a pursuit of true and authority, authoritative wisdom from sources outside of God's revealed word is weary, weary is wearisome and tireless. This is not saying that we cannot read other books or consult other books. We're just asking the question of finality, final authority. You know, the largest library, last May, actually, I was privileged to be able to go to Washington, D.C. with some of our guys from church, and we did some sightseeing. And I love books. I love books. I have a little app called Library Thing. You could scan your book. And then it keeps a catalog of all your books. And it's pretty useful. You could put notes if I let someone borrow it. I'll, you know, My wife gave me a little stamp that says, uh, Mark Buckingham's book. And sometimes I'll go to people's houses and I'll be like, I think that's my book. <laughs> and I set them up that way. Put the stamp in the back so you don't see it. Boom, you took my book, man. I love books. I love books. And we went to Washington, D.C. We went to the Library of Congress. It takes up three large buildings. And in its history, it was destroyed during the War of 1812. It was replenished when Thomas Jefferson sold his personal library of 6,000 books. How many books do you have, PJ? Do you know? My library thing app tells me that I have about 600 books. It's just one wall. In, my, in one of the rooms in my house, just filled with books. So, 600 versus 6,000. This library burned down, and this one man donates 6,000 books way back in the 1800s. Today, it has 150 million books, and if you were to take all of the shelves and line them up, it would accumulate to about 800 miles altogether. That... And think about this, that that is the world's pursuit of knowledge. And what all 800 miles of those books are trying to accomplish cannot trump what this one book accomplishes in the life of the believer. You could have memorized all 800 miles of those books, and they will not benefit you the way that knowing this one God-given divine book will change your life. The pursuit of knowledge is is something that draws attention to people, but God is calling us to understand his word. What all of those books try and communicate, fact or fiction, textbook or recreation, religion or science, they cannot compare to what we have in God's word. You want to read everything under the sun to justify your beliefs? You can find published work to justify any belief. We read more tweets than we read truth. Sometimes, even in good intentions, we might read more blogs than we do Bible. Sometimes, even with good intentions, we can become masters of theology. We can be masters of parsing verbs or, or uh, of these historic theologians Then we are actually masters of God's Word. Solomon is reminding us that there should be a takeaway that we have, and that takeaway is that we should refocus our attention constantly on God's Word. Lastly, no amen, Pharaohs? We're good? Lastly, I do want to point out that there is a fourth takeaway. Not only does Ecclesiastes teach us to be lifelong learners, Not only does the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us or encourage us to to respond or react to the Word of God, not only does the book of Ecclesiastes tell us to refocus our attention on God through His Word, but Ecclesiastes encourages us to fulfill life's purpose by worshiping God. Fulfill life's purpose by worshiping God. Verses 13 and 14 are very clear. He says, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for, notice, all humanity. Filipinos, Flowerians. is that what you guys call yourselves? Belflauerians, BBCers, PBCers, Pillar Bible Churchers, Southern Californians, Is it just for us? Is it just for millennials? Is it just for baby boomers? Is it just for the rich or is it just for the poor? No, this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This last section here tells us that The book of Ecclesiastes was written to encourage not just Solomon and the nation of Israel, but to encourage the entire world to be lifelong worshipers of God. This is the conclusion. This is the summary. Literally, the object of the imperative appears first in the way that it's it's expressed by Solomon. He says, you need to think of God. And when you think of God, one of the things you need to think of is fear. We don't need to soften that. We don't need to apologize for fearing God. God is scary when you're standing on the wrong side. God, you should fear an almighty God who knows all of your thoughts, who knows all of your intentions, good or evil. You know, I I, I grew up like clockwork every saturday morning i'm doing one thing no ifs ands or buts every saturday morning from the time i turned 12 years old i was mowing my dad's lawn like clockwork if i woke up and my dad was gone i knew i had to be mowing the lawn because if he came home and it wasn't mowed we had issues well he didn't have issues i had issues I just knew that that was something that was built into what I was, even to this day as a grown man, married, with my own house, when I see my dad's car roll up, I get nervous because I'm like, what is he going to say about my lawn? <laughs> and then sometimes, and you know, when I was growing up, my dad was real slick. He would start by, he would mow the lawn, and then he just had me sweep. And then I would mow the lawn, and then he, and then he would sweep. And then before I knew it, I was doing both, (laughs) and my dad was just sitting inside hanging out, and and nonetheless, I, I knew like clockwork, it was every single week a responsibility that he expected out of me, and I was fearful if I didn't do it, and it was a good thing. I actually think it was an encouraging thing for me to experience that because as an adult, it teaches me that fear does, in one sense, have positive outcomes when it is used properly. And God is not a mishandler of his authority. He doesn't mishandle or abuse his power. He actually tells it like it is. He he tells us what he expects of us, to love him, to repent of our sins, to trust in him, to serve him in, in all of our life, and to love one another. We are called to fear him. And notice, keep his commands. This is significant, a right belief in God. Knowing who he is and fearing him will always produce the right kind of behavior. The right belief in God, knowing who God truly is, will always produce the right kind of behavior. Knowing God should produce obedience. And there is a motivation that's even given to the reader at the end uh, in verse 14. But notice before we get to that, this is for all of humanity. I don't know what you look forward to. I look forward to the next time the Lakers win a championship. Next year, right? It's going to be our year next year. It's going to be our year next year. I I, I look forward to maybe one day God answering that prayer and giving me a child. I I look forward to one day in June finishing and turning in that final paper and turning to my wife and saying, It is finished. We're done. I look forward to a a lot of things, but there's one thing that trumps all of those things. And that's the return of Christ. That that is the joy that will fill my heart. That that Christ will return and all, all of the mockery levied towards Christianity, we will be vindicated. And here the passage is saying... People need to know about this. This is good for all of humanity. We, we, we try and do many good things for society. We try and do many good things for society but, or, and, and the people around us. But the best thing we can do is teach them about God and let them and understand the importance of what it means to trust in him and follow after him. It is good for all of humanity to have the gospel and to have eternal hope in Christ. There's a motivation in verse 14 that says, For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The omniscient and righteousness of God are all put on display here in this final verse. God knows. He's omniscient. He knows all of your deeds and thoughts, and he will exercise unparalleled judgment in the discernment of good and evil the motivation we have to prioritize a life that is godward is that we will all one day answer to him and god tells us in the new testament that this judgment comes by his son in god in human flesh jesus christ jesus will judge and condemn the unrighteous for their sins he will welcome into eternity his children on the other side of that and he will give and grant unto them eternal forgiveness for their sins as he has punished Jesus Christ on the cross. Ultimately, these are the two categories that all of humanity fall under. And why is Jesus Christ chosen to be the judge? Because he is God in human flesh. That's the argument that John uses, that all judgment has been given to him because we might have a natural tendency when we stand before God in judgment to say, you don't know what it was like. You were sitting in heaven. You have no idea what it was like to be married to this person. You have no idea what it was like to have these kinds of kids. One time I remember arguing with my dad. I love my dad, by the way. He loves the Lord. I remember arguing with my dad as a teenager and saying, you know, I never asked God to give you as my parents. And my dad said, hey, right back at you. We didn't ask you to be our son, but this, it is what it is, so let's make it work. And we just, we actually started laughing after that, but it was a really tense moment. Uh, that shows my dad's, he's very winsome, and... Um, You know, we take a look at these things. There might be a tendency for us if we stood before God the Father to to levy the accusation that He doesn't understand. But then when we stand before Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will look us square in the eye and say, No, I was on earth. And and I experienced all the temptations common to man, yet, as the author of Hebrews tells us, without sin. He will judge us. The day is coming. Um, here we are called as people reading the Word of God to be lifelong worshipers, to fear God, to keep His commandments. I would argue that, in and of itself, is the summary of a life of worship. Knowing God, loving God, serving God, all with the right motivations. Do you have a proper understanding of God? How do your beliefs actually dictate your behavior? The Bible tells us that if we love God, we'll obey Him. And if that's the case, what then is the evidence of your life today that shows that truth? I was told early on in my marriage, sometimes you just got to take your wife out and ask one question. And don't try and, don't, don't try and answer back, just bite your tongue. Ask the question, what can I do to be, be a better husband? Just ask that question. And then let your wife, and if, you know, my wife loves hearing that question. And then we have a really healthy conversation that comes. And, and the point is not to defend myself or, 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 or say anything, but just to take the critique and to take the evaluation from someone else. That might be a helpful thing to do, not just in the context of a marriage, but maybe in the context of a local church. Ask another church member, how can I be a better brother or sister to you? And don't make it your aim to justify. Don't make it your aim to try and and reason your way as to why you're not doing certain things. But just make it your aim to to listen and and to understand and to really evaluate whether or not in your life there is manifestations of biblical fruit that show that you know who God is, that you fear Him, and are obeying Him, not just in your personal life, but even in the context of your local church. Uh, You know, this book takes all of the wisdom of Solomon and calls us to respond in a Godward direction. Uh, Last year... I don't know if you remember this. The Federal Emergency and Management Agency sent out a test alert to everybody's cell phone. Do you guys remember that? It's like a random middle of the day during the weekday, a, a, a text was sent out, and it was intended to see whether or not the president, in the act of a national disaster, could warn the population about the impending judgment. And it's interesting because the person standing behind that was the president of the United States. He was the one, or he is the one that has the authority to determine when to use that particular tool. And you know what's interesting is that it doesn't matter whether or not you're a United States citizen. Our intern, Josh, he's studying at Master Seminary. He's not even a citizen of the United States, and he got the text. You want to say, not my president, he can literally say that that's not his president. It doesn't matter if he doesn't want to receive the word that this text is supposed to accomplish in warning people of impending national disaster. The text goes out as a warning to everyone in the country in order to protect them from impending judgment. This is exactly what Solomon is doing. He might be the king of Israel. He might have a jurisdiction that covers a a certain piece of land in the Middle East, but he is standing there and he is sending out a beckoning call to all who are listening to him to love God, keep his commandments, obey him, fear him. And this is the purpose for your existence. Listen to what I have to say. The final passage is Solomon's alert to all of earth. He wants everyone to know. That with all of life's difficulties, you only need to know that you're here on earth to love God and keep his commandments. Amen, Pharaoh? Amen, Pharaoh. All right. Uh, Please join me and we'll end our time in prayer. Lord, we are humbled because your word speaks volumes. And there are a lot of complexities to human life. Relationships are complex. Even superficial relationships can be complex in, in, in that things can get awkward. We even avoid them. We find them difficult. You know, work in this world is complex. We have relationships with our coworkers. We have responsibilities that we're, we're called to do. We, we weigh out judgments as, as to what should prioritize, what to prioritize in our time. Life has so many complexities. And on top of that, Lord, we have the complexities that we struggle with internally, our own sins, our own struggles, our own hardships, Lord. Um, help us to remember that in the midst of these complexities, the, the, the end of what Solomon has to say is to call us back to the simplicity of Christian living, to love God, to enjoy Christ and his forgiveness, to repent of our sins, to walk with him and, and to live faithfully in and amongst the believing community as we live life in a fallen earth. Remind us, Lord, of these truths. Remind us of these takeaways, Lord, and, and bear, or plant the seed in hearts that, that are, are cold to these things. Uh, produce the fruit in, in believers who, who are hearing these things, Lord. Uh, These are fruits that you will bear. These are prayers that you will answer. Lord, help us to respond to your word appropriately. We pray these things in your name. Amen.